The Therapy is a Christian podcast is all things mental health and Christ. We specifically talk about how mental health and God are merged together to foster growth, healing, and making mental health a normal conversation. I'm your host, Roz and Renee, and welcome to the show. episode of the Therapy is a Christian podcast is brought to you by the Help Me Find a Therapist webinar. Are you someone that has been listening to this podcast and you definitely are ready to take the step in looking for a therapist? Are you someone that is interested in finding an African-American therapist, maybe of a Christian therapist and don't know where to start? I've got you covered, girl. Let's cut out the Google searches and let me help you find a therapist that's right for you. So in this webinar, I'll share with you how you can find a therapist that's just right for you. This webinar will cover how you can find a therapist in your area. Maybe you want to find a therapist that's virtual, low cost options, how to find a therapist, maybe with or without insurance. I'll also cover specifically all of the websites you can utilize to be able to find an African-American therapist and even a Christian therapist. So I promise you, I won't leave you hanging That is not the only thing we're going to cover in this webinar. As a bonus, I also will include my consultation question ebook. So when you call a therapist, you know exactly what questions you need to ask, specifically even asking them questions about their faith and if you can include that in your sessions. This ebook has all of the questions that you want to ask, as well as it'll give you the opportunity to really advocate for yourself for your mental health journey. If you're interested in starting therapy, definitely go to helpmefindatherapist.com. Again, that's helpmefindatherapist.com or go to the link in the show notes. I cannot wait for you to start your mental health journey. Now let's get back to the show. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Therapy as a Christian podcast. I'm your host, Raza Renee. Welcome to another episode of the show. Hi, y'all. I am so excited about this podcast interview. Can I call you doctor? Yes, yes, that's hey, fine. Of course. Last name, Holly, but me and Holly are on our first name. <laughs> okay, so first of all, the Lord is amazing how this even came about, but mm. I shared something on Instagram And periodically when I share things on Instagram, I always go back and thank people for sharing the post or so on and so forth. And I randomly saw our guest share my Mm -hmm. post that I posted. And I was like, oh, let me go look at her page. Like just being nosy, just as most of us are on Instagram. And I saw some of her posts. She's Mm -hmm. also a social worker like me. And she does research. And so we'll talk about that, of course, in her intro. But I saw what she does her research on and was completely enthralled in her posts and was Aww. like, I have to have her come on the podcast to give mm-hmm. us the real, 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 like educated part of what I completely talk about to y'all for years now at this point mm-hmm. of faith and mental health and just the combination mm-hmm. of the two. And so I'm going to introduce Holly. Of course, Holly, pronounce your last name because, you know, I don't want to say it wrong because people pronounce my last name wrong. It's okay, but I just definitely want to pronounce it and give respect to your name. But everyone say, hey, Holly, say hey. (laughs) Hello. Yeah, it's so, so good to be here, Rosalind. I'm so honored to get to be here to talk with you today. And to my last name, it's pronounced Ox Handler. I'm married into that. And it is literally Ox Handler. (laughs) So you can imagine what some of the folks in my husband's family history possibly were doing. So anyways, but yeah, (laughs) it's so good to be here. And I am so, so grateful for the ways that God wove us to connect on Instagram. And I loved the post for your listeners. It was the post where you had talked about, you know, those automations that you can put just so you have those little words of affirmation spoken over during, you know, at certain points during the day or whatever. I just loved that. I didn't even know that my phone could do that. Girl, me even. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) why don't you tell us a little bit about you? We'll go into kind of your research, but tell us a little bit about you, what you do on a daily basis and all of that. Yeah. Well, 
So my family and I, we live in Waco, Texas. I am the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development at Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. I've been here since about 2014 and previously had studied at the University of Houston and was in Houston for about 10 years. And then before that, I actually grew up in upstate New York. So that's where my roots are, are up there. Um, so yeah, so it's a little bit just about my education. My husband and I, we have two kids. Our daughter, Callie, is eight and our son, Oliver, is five. And they have kept us quite busy. I mean, they keep us busy, period. But then through this last year with juggling virtual learning alongside working from home and all the things that I know so many of us have been navigating, it's been fun and difficult. And, you know, we're holding the struggles alongside those opportunities kind of side by side, um, thinking about this last year. So, but yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm only getting an intro of that. So new mommyhood is definitely something I'm like, Wow. When Mother's Day happened, I was like, I understand why we give respect to mom. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. It is. That's right. Well, and I can only imagine too, you know, I know that you've walked into motherhood in the pandemic and I can only imagine navigating that and how difficult that must've been too. And just, yeah, yeah. it was a whole, it was a whole thing. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your research and your work? That's like the juice of what I'm like so excited about talking. Yeah. I'm so, so honored. I'm so excited. I love the work that I get to do. Like it is such a privilege to get to do this work and research that I do. So I'm happy to talk about it. So I primarily study the intersection of faith and mental health. I, which, you know, rings true for, I know the podcast that you host and this work that you're doing. And I have been really over the last, gosh, about dozen years or so have been looking at this intersection from as many different angles as I can. So I've looked at it in terms of the degree to which mental health care providers are integrating clients' faith. I've looked at it in terms of, you know, what do mental health care providers think and where does their faith kind of fit in Mm. with the work that they do? But then most importantly, you know, our clients are the center of the work that we do. They are what we are focusing on in the heartbeat of who we are serving. And so what is it that clients want when it comes to integrating their faith in mental health treatment? So those are kind of like the areas of research. And I'm happy to dive into those. And I'm sure we'll talk about those in a bit. But I also, you know, some of the other work that I do is I'm a professor. And so I teach courses on this topic and around research. And I co-host a podcast called CXMH, which, I mean, we're going to have to bring you onto that show next year. I'm so excited. Just knowing this good work that you're doing with this one. But CXMH is a podcast on the intersection of faith and mental health. And yeah, and then I'm trying to help disseminate research. Some of that is tied to the Instagram stuff that you see and some of the newsletters that I send out and things like that. So anyways, lots of little hats. So such good work. So let's kind of go back Mm -hmm. to the beginning. So what kind of got you started in just this whole desire to want to research this in general? Yeah, no, it's such a good question. So for me, this goes all the way back to when I was about 10, when my parents were starting to go through their divorce. My mom, I'm really, really thankful that my mom, even in the nineties had recognized the value of mental health care. And she got my sister and I into seeing a therapist to just talk through kind of what we were navigating through that season of the divorce, the grief and many other layers that we were navigating. Yeah. Oh, it was, it's such a gift. Gosh, I'm so grateful. I mean, it's inspired me to be getting my kids into therapy as soon as possible, just so that they can get acclimated and comfortable with the idea of seeing what we call a feelings doctor, just like your physical doctor, you also have a feelings doctor. So that's what we call them to our kids. But anyways, so my mom had gotten me into this therapist and I fell in love with this idea of like, oh my gosh, like this is a job. I can do this. Like I can hold space for folks through difficulties. What an honor. And so I had really early on decided that's what I wanted to do was to go into mental health care. I thought I had wanted to go into psychology because that was all I had known. I didn't know about many of the other helping professions that address mental health care and ended up getting my undergrad in psychology. 
Um, after I finished my undergrad degree at University of Houston, I began working in the field with older adults with anxiety and depression. And so I was doing some, what we call cognitive behavioral therapy with them, which means that we're talking about like their thoughts and their behaviors and what's happening when they're struggling with anxiety and depression. And in that work, a lot of these older adults were saying, you know, that their faith was important to them. But my supervisor at the time was like, we don't talk about that in the therapeutic setting. So, you know, don't like, if they bring that up, just kind of like skirt around that. Don't really go there with them. I didn't really know what to do with that or how to navigate that. And so we ended up doing another study building on some of that work where we asked older adults, like, you know, do you want to talk about your faith in mental health treatment? Do you want to bring it up? Do you want the therapist to bring it up? Like, what does that look like for you? And overwhelmingly, these clients were saying that they want to talk about it and they want the therapist to be the one to bring it up. So that was powerful for me in that moment. I started to learn about some other researchers in this area. Dr. Ken Pargament is one who's done a whole bunch of work on religious coping and just this intersection. I learned more from him just before starting my master's in social work program. But when I got to my MSW program, I remember sitting in the auditorium and hearing all of these areas of diversity being talked about and elevated and that we need to pay attention to these areas because they're important for our clients. But we really stayed away from the topic of faith and spirituality and religion. There just was a degree to like just avoiding it, I would say, in the classroom. And so that said, I really just felt this strong nudge that this is the work that was mine to do. I let go of the desire to become a therapist and really was like, I'm going to go get my PhD and I'm going to study this because someone needs to do it. And let me pause you real quick. How was it for you to let that go? I know that's rough because that's been something I thought of even not having my LCSW yet of this desire to really just kind of like you said pioneer this work but just like what was that like for you to give up maybe the individualized idea of helping people in that regard but more so having the broader scope of the exposure of why this is important yeah yeah no that's a really good question so I would say in general the process wasn't easy and it wasn't like an overnight decision there was a lot of careful reflective discernment and a lot of careful tuning in to see, okay, what is it that I was created to do? And is it to hold space for individual clients at a time, or is it to go into this line of research? I paid attention to kind of how I felt when I would do research. And I noticed that like when I'm reading research, when I'm learning about research, when I'm like putting together survey questions and things like that, I get really excited and I enjoy it. It's fun for me. And I know that that is not the same for most people. (laughs) So like starting to recognize like, oh, I enjoy this. I'm having fun doing this. Maybe this is like my calling in some ways. And I use that word very carefully, but it feels like in some ways, like this is the work that I was made to do. And I really fell in love with it. It made me come alive getting to do this work. And so having had the experience of working with clients in the field, and I loved that work, but I didn't feel that same energy in the same way as I felt when I was doing research. And so knowing that this was like a long-term career, it just felt like this is the work that I want to dedicate my life to do. Yeah. So the level of impact, because like you said, even sitting in classrooms and not having a professor to say, Hey, what does it look like when a client says, I want to incorporate my faith into my session as a professional, like, yeah, especially me being in the South, I think, you know, it comes up, but it's not like you're obligated to do anything. We're just kind of taught to be very general. We're taught to be not really a lot of self-disclosure, not really bringing a lot of that into the space for, you know, our clients, even for me as a client, I don't know a lot about my therapist. I don't really Mm -hmm. know a lot about her. And I've been with her over three years. Mm. I don't really know a lot about her. There's a lot of boundaries, but there has been so much brought up about God that has really shaped my life and even the work I'm doing now. 
And yeah. I don't think if I had had that on the front end, what that would have even looked like for me walking through my healing journey and just incorporating yes. that and really dealing with trauma. Yeah. So kind of with that being said, and now have having some time with the years doing it, what has changed for you, especially looking at this now as kind of mm. really like, this has been a, I won't say a deficit. That's a very like strong word, but this has been a missing piece within the social work space. And now mm. seeing that as like a benefit now, what is your thought process in now stepping into that? Oh man, that's such a good question. I really love that. I mean, first and foremost, I would say that I do want to honor that there are folks who have been doing some of this work, but I think that they have been fewer and farther between as compared to some of the other areas of research that we've been exploring as a profession. And so the ability to build on the good work that others have, have done, it feels like an honor. I would say that as I've moved in and through this line of work, I think when I first started, I had my experience with my clients and I had some understanding based on what I was reading in the research. And I kind of was like, I know, I kind of know what's going on. Now I feel like I have a million more questions than I have answers. I feel like there is a much heavier layer of humility. I just feel so much more just uh, there's so much more humility when it comes to looking into this line of research in part because as we do research studies they end up prompting more questions than answers like we may get an answer to one thing but all of a sudden we're like oh but what about that finding yes. we didn't really think about that before yes. that's new so there's that religious coping like that just triggered in my mind oh yeah as we cope religiously with things, how we, like, I can definitely think just as African-American, just, you know, mm. there's such a, I mean, there's so many layers to the way we deal with trauma. There's like a yeah. bypassing where we just kind of like push it under the rug. There's a reliance yeah. on community. There is a, you don't talk about this because it stays mm. in this house. There's a, so many layers of this. Yeah. It's really like what brings about healthy coping? what brings about coping that also is lined up with our belief system and just yes. like, girl, this, I mean, how we could geek out on this podcast <laughs> all, all day. I know. No, we really could. I mean, we really could. Cause like, I'm thinking even just like, you know, circling back to the piece around, like, you know, what I'm feeling now doing this line of work as compared to what I did, there's so much more mystery in both the faith and the mental health spheres yeah. and the ways in which so many other layers of intersectionality cross over just those two. And it just makes me want to be like, I want to steward the time that I have to the best of my ability to help understand this intersection as well as I can and to help teach others about this intersection. Yeah. But I also am very mindful that I am not going to know all the answers yeah. in this one exactly. lifetime exactly. and that's okay. But you're right. Like when we think about religious coping, like some of the research that we've seen over the years includes the attention to positive religious coping versus negative religious coping and paying attention to how those weave into the work that we do with our therapists or the work that the therapist does with the client is really important because we see, and I'll go into a little bit about what those are, but we see that when we engage in more positive religious coping, we end up having more positive health and mental health outcomes. And coping, not to pause you, coping, for those of you that don't know, is really how yeah. you deal with things. Like the practical things you do when yes. you're, let's say you have a really bad conversation with a parent and you may go and drink or go on a drinking spree. Mm -hmm. Hope by dealing with that conversation, yes. going to do something to help you in that moment. So when mm -hmm. we're talking about positive coping, that may be a turnaround of, okay, when I get mad at my mom and she says something really hurtful to me, I'm going to go talk to a friend who understands what I'm talking about and I can get right. some good feedback, or I'm going to go journal about it, or yes. I'm going to go and take a walk to cool off and mm -hmm. then come back and process it. So that's a, that's when we're talking about coping. It's like what you do following the trigger or what you do after the onset of a situation happening. So when we're talking yes. about religious coping. We're talking also about like maybe prayer or getting mm -hmm. into your community, but also there can be negative things with that too. It's like, well, I'm just mm -hmm. going to cut you off because I don't want to talk yeah. to you. 
Yeah. And is that, yes, oh, I'm putting up a boundary. With, you know, I'm putting up a boundary. And it's just like, is that necessary? Is that the positive aspect of what we can do? And our viewpoint can be, oh, well, this is what God is leading me to do. Kind of, mm. you know, and so those are kind of the perspective I wanted to provide as we're kind of talking about this. So yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for unpacking a little bit more about coping in general and how that is tied to, you know, those difficult seasons or difficult mm-hmm. triggers or things exactly. that happen. So we can see some positive religious coping would be something like, you know, praying to God or partnering with God or your higher power through a difficult season. Whereas negative religious coping might be something like feeling punished by your higher power or feeling like an evil spirit caused this thing to happen. Like that's what we see in the research. And so (laughs) I know y'all can't see me, but I'm over here like trying to breathe. So Ken Pargament, he really pioneered this work around religious coping and looking at positive versus negative. He's also looked at the ways in which we work with our higher power when it comes to different styles of coping alongside our higher power. So for example, some people, when they're in a difficult season, they may say, you know what, higher power, like you take a back seat, I got this. And that would be called a self-directed approach. Like I'm going to be in charge and fix all the things. And then, mm -hmm, and then we have folks who do what's called a deferring coping style, which is, you know what? higher power or God, like you take over this whole situation. I'm going to take a back seat and I'll just let you do all of the work. So that would be a deferring. To also add to that, that also gives a layer of not taking responsibility for something. That's right. That's exactly right. So the last one that we have instead of us taking responsibility. So the last one, the third one is a collaborative coping style where we say, okay, higher power, like we are going to work together to figure this out. I'm going to do what's mine to do. And I'm going to trust you to do what's yours to do. And we're going to navigate this together. And what we have found in the research is that that collaborative coping style has the most positive outcomes. Like folks get better faster when they work with their higher power as compared to just leaving it up for the higher power to do or taking it all on themselves. So can you see? (laughs) So y'all, I have not heard this part of Holly, Mm. like knowledge base. I'm shook. Okay. I want to maintain solace. I'll probably have a whole cry later and be like, God, just Mm. how good for just, but the fact that, okay, let me just pause and say, there's a name to our feelings. That's right. Yes. We do this unknowingly. Like there have been times I'm like, oh Lord, I'm just going to let you handle it. I'm not going to deal with it. Right. But there's the level of responsibility and all yeah. of those things too. Yeah. Or I'm going to let you deal with that person versus, right. no, I need to have a constructive conversation yeah. and learn, have the forethought of trusting God to like, lead me to know what to say. Have yes. to know to, you know, those things, like you said, the collaborative, yeah. oh. Yeah. I mean, this is one, this is not the only reason, but this is one reason why I get so charged up about talking with mental health care providers about receiving training to talk with clients about their faith, because, you know, there are so many layers of nuance of lived experiences when it comes to faith and various belief systems and different approaches and how we engage with that higher power. There's different views of, you know, some people view their higher power as being authoritative versus other people who view their higher power as being benevolent and loving versus critical, versus distant. I mean, so all of these layers, this is where I'm like, okay, mental health care providers, like let's start talking about the nuance because clients are bringing this to session as they should, because it's a part of who they are. And that is welcome in the therapeutic space. And it ties to, if we're going to do CBT, right? their belief about That's who right. they are and the belief right. of how they may feel condemned mm-hmm. ties to every part of their behavior. This is why When they feel rejected, they completely close off to people. They may feel rejected also from God, which may go into those behaviors of maybe being promiscuous, those behaviors of going and spending a bunch of money, because you may feel like this black and white, all or nothing thought process. That's right. Impacts the way you act. And we're looking at it from a very, well, tell me why you think this way, or Mm -hmm. tell me what your thoughts are, thoughts and feelings, but not understanding that it can tie way deeper. Way That's right. To that. Okay. 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 We're going to put mm. a pin in that one. Oh. <laughs> 
I'm like so excited. I don't know if I'm sitting up here like now, should I go get a PhD award? But you know, that's the whole other conversation. <laughs> okay. So why don't you talk about in your research, why you think clients want to incorporate this? And you can talk a little bit about the outcomes and like why, like what you've seen, but also just in a very brief way, why do you think clients desire to incorporate faith into their therapy sessions? Yeah. Well, as briefly as possible, I would say it's because it is a core part of who they are. They are coming into the therapy session as we use the term biopsychosocial spiritual in mental health fields. What that means is that when people come in, they have their physical health, they have their mental health, they have their social supports and network, but they also have a spiritual side to who they are. And we see that spirituality, the way that we've seen it defined in social work literature, especially, is that it is the core of who we are. It is an equal component to our body, mind, and social networks. And it is how we connect with everything around us. So first of all, clients are coming in because they want to talk about it, especially those for whom their faith is really important to them, because it is a big part of who they are. It's also, I think, important in the sense that clients are bringing it in because it's not just an important part of who they are, but it often is woven into whatever it is that they're coming into the therapy session with. It can be a source of positive, encouraging, supportive coping. Like some of the things that we talked about, like it could be a source of strength and support. It can also be a source of struggle and pain. And some folks have been really hurt by faith communities. And if they're going to come in and talk about the things that they're wrestling with, I think it's important for clients to feel the freedom to say, and I've experienced these difficulties in my faith journey or with my faith communities. And the therapist really is charged to hold that space for that. Yeah. And also just like looking at it from a place of, because I've been hurt, there must be, this must be my destiny with this. There's Mm. must, that must feel like this is where God wants me to be, or this must be, you know, that unpacking. And like you said, a clinician or a therapist having the training to base to that is huge because it's not the very generalized way of okay well tell me how that makes you feel okay things like no it's different it's very different it's huge because it goes back to a belief system of how do you view god how do you incorporate him in your life how has he been incorporated how has your mind been shifted or what traumatic experience did you experience that has impacted now your own spiritual like it's so deep i'm gonna go get a phd now after this like come come to this side Holly I know I love it I love it I love it I love I just I love when other people get as excited about research as I do because it doesn't always happen so I I like information that makes sense so yeah so okay so let's kind of talk about the outcomes because I can like okay so generalize my audience y'all know me sis y'all know why I've said go find a therapist who understands your faith that's Christian, that can give you both sides of it. It's so important. And I think one of the things I have really heard from a lot of people is they feel like they're giving up on God if they go prioritize their mental health or go seek counseling. But Mm -hmm. in that, if you have someone that's really got it and understands and can walk you through that process, I'm telling you, and I call my therapist, like, I don't know where she came from. I literally mm. don't know how. And she tells me all the time. She's like, you know, thank you so much for all the people you refer. And I'm like, girl, because I will single-handedly keep you in mm-hmm. business because yep. of the, the <laughs> amount of transformation I've received from just not mm. putting it all on her, but me doing the work as well, but just the knowledge base to yeah, have yeah. that lens a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. has been so transformational. So I can talk about my life, but also for you, Holly, doing the research, Mm -hmm. what are the outcomes clients have when clinicians incorporate, maybe not even in just the therapeutic process, but even just asking the question, do you, because that's a big part, just the single-handed question, because it takes the guessing game out, I think too, but Mm -hmm. also what is the importance behind that? So I'm Yeah. Oh man. Okay. So let me think real quick. So, so I know you got excited really quick. I know. 
Well, I'm thinking of a few different things. I think there's one thing that I want to say really quick, just with what we were just talking about, about clients is one thing that I really want to elevate is also that I don't think I said as clearly before is that clients, they want to be talking about their faith. Like we have data that shows that clients want to be talking about their faith as it relates to the work they're doing. And they want the therapist to bring it up. And a lot of that is because it's such a taboo topic that clients don't necessarily feel like, is this okay to talk about? Like we're kind of told there are some things to not talk about with strangers. And so can I talk about my faith or my religion or spirituality and the messiness of the spiritual journey with this therapist? But at the same time, we see a lot of therapists who they're simply waiting for their client to say, I want to talk about this. And so there's this disconnect. And that's kind of where I've been trying to do the work to help bridge that disconnect. But it goes to your question about like, What is the question that should be coming up? At least a therapist asking, do you want to talk about your faith as it relates to the work that we do together? That question alone is transformative. So it doesn't, I know a lot of times counselors and therapists will have in their, you know, the intake form that you fill out when you are just beginning the work, the the therapeutic work, they'll ask like, you know, which faith tradition do you identify with? And like, That can be helpful, but it also isn't always the most helpful because someone might check a box that they identified with, you know, 20 years ago, but they really haven't been practicing that faith, right? So the important question is, do you want to talk about your faith as it relates to the work that we do together? And then that opens the door for the client to know, oh, I can talk about it. And that question alone, what we've seen in the research, just asking that question can help improve treatment outcomes, like you were talking just about, right? Question. Just, just the question. question. And I'll just add that in too for myself, for my personal journey. Part of the reason I even selected my therapist was she put it in her bio on psychology today. It was mm-hmm. in her bio. She said, I offer Christ-centered counseling if you would like. That was just in her bio. So they, it it also just made me feel comfortable reaching mm-hmm. out to say, I want to talk about God yeah. in sessions. And even yeah. like you said, so as a clinician, she's right. So many times, just for you all to know, most of your first couple of sessions are information gathering. It's where the right. That's right. able to just gather what's going on. A lot of times too, we're focusing on just the primary problem you're coming into. So Mm -hmm. we may not pull, we may ask, okay, what religious belief or what religious background you may have practice. Mm -hmm. That may just be us just having that idea. We may not know or think at the time, this is important to discuss, or this is important into the way that you may cope, how you deal with things, all of that. And so as a client, you may not feel comfortable bringing up because you may, as someone who may have never experienced counseling, you may just come in because I'm like, I know I have some trauma or I know I have right. some difficulties. Mm-hmm. I'm not associating that with also the way right. that I deal with it. Right, I'm right. At it. And so like Holly said, just asking the question may bring up just the connection between the two to mm-hmm. have the bridge to have that be a discussion. Right, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. And so with the outcomes, what are the things that people are saying with the outcomes as far as them having benefit? I think you had told me one time they get better faster or some, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, 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 sure. So over the last, gosh, I would say maybe 15, 20 years or so, we've been seeing a lot more in terms of like interventions that have been developed that you would take, let's say, for example, like a totally secular cognitive behavioral therapy, like a manualized CBT intervention, let's say for anxiety, and there's no attention to religion or spirituality within that. And then you have a version of the same thing where you very intentionally infuse the client's belief system and whatever it is that they believe in, their views of their higher power, their coping strategies, coping statements, things like that. And what we see is that when we integrate clients' faith into the treatment, regardless of what the client believes in, because we do want to honor, especially in mental health fields, we want to be sure that we're honoring all the diverse experiences and faith traditions that folks bring. But when we ethically and effectively integrate clients' faith, it improves outcomes. Clients do get better faster. They have a reduction 
in symptoms with anxiety. We've seen it with depression. We've seen it even with studies with like migraines. When we attend to whatever it is that the clients believe in and pay attention to it within the treatment, it helps clients heal faster. So part of my research is we call it evidence-based practice, which means that we are looking at what the research is saying and including that in the work that we're doing with clients. And so from that point of view, I'm like, why are we not paying attention to clients' faith? Again, it's not about imposing our faith as a mental health care provider. Like ethically, mental health care providers are not allowed to push their faith or impose their faith onto their clients. So that's not what I'm talking about here. It's really about asking the client about what they believe in and identifying ways that that can infuse within the treatment and the work that you're doing with your therapist. Yeah. This episode of the Therapy is a Christian podcast is brought to you by Christ Couch. Hey, girl. So if you're not familiar with Christ Couch, let me tell you all about it. So every single Monday, I send an email to my email list that is filled with so much information, so much value every single Monday. And I love to call it Christ Couch. Christ Couch is a place where we discuss countless topics, gather together as girlfriends, and share our daily walk through life, all while uplifting one another. Over time, I have been able to learn that Christ allows us to experience his goodness and true vulnerability through relationships. So let's take a seat and share it all on the couch. In this Monday email that you will receive every single Monday from me at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, you'll get a full-on devotional and prayer a little motivation Monday, I like to call it, where you get to start the week off with a little motivation and a weekly mental health tip that you can weekly and very easily add to your life. So if you're interested in Christ Couch, definitely go to the link in my show notes, completely free to you. You'll get an email every single Monday from me. And I cannot wait to share with you all the amazing things on the couch. Now let's get back to the show. And I can yeah. give a very, like, very true life example of this. I remember, mm-hmm. and my therapist, she does incorporate some DBT. Mm-hmm. And she's done some gestalt theory stuff with me. Like, I remember there was a therapy session where she made me literally talk to my eight-year-old self and I broke down mm. like, like a little baby. Oh, that's a whole gosh, nother story. Beautiful. It was so powerful. Mm. She's like, oh my yeah. gosh, you're, you're really, yes. really going in with me right now. But girl, so I mm. remember there was a session where we were unpacking God, like mm-hmm. really like, she, she said, what is your view of the Lord? And I said, oh, you know, God is, you know, sometimes he gets mad at me and he gets upset with me and I get punished. And I was really talking mm. from that frame of reference. And I remember her saying, okay, how does it make you feel? And mm. I said, well, it makes me feel sad. It makes me feel like I'm a disappointment to him. It makes me feel like he doesn't care for me. Mm. And so she said, what do you do following that? And I said, oh, well, I try to make sure I always stay and do what it is that I know I need to do or what people say yeah. I should know what the Bible says I should do like this very like he's yeah. a dictator essentially that's what I described to her yeah and she said, you see the series and, and I understand CBT enough to where I understood how she walked because she did the whole triangle and all that kind of stuff uh-huh and so I was like oh my god and she said how can you reframe this thought mm-hmm. and I said I don't know and we talked through but oh what have you heard about God being and I said well, I've heard he's loving I heard that he cares for me. And I remember we went through all of 2019. We only talked about worthiness of how Mm. I'm worthy of being God's daughter. That was so hard for me to conceptualize because for me, it was like, I'm his daughter, but I'm also a servant to him. So that means I have to do what he says to do. And if I don't, then I'm disappointing him. But how overwhelming that is, because then it plays a performance. Yes. In a place of, I don't have the freedom to think. I don't have the freedom to choose. It goes back into that thing where you're talking about Mm -hmm. where we put all this on God and we don't take any responsibility. So just the walkthrough of that, Mm -hmm. I remember thinking to myself, now I honor it as a privilege to be just like, like you said, humbled and just being able to do this work. Yeah. It means of, I have to do this because you know, we got to do these things. We got to build, we got to build, we got to build. This is just like, I'm a worker for the Lord instead of just, I'm working collaboratively with God as an authority in the earth to do something so awesome. How, Mm. and God wants me to experience the goodness behind that. 
that one year of work with her completely changed the way I looked at God. And so I think about wow. when people who don't get to experience that just that bridge. Yeah. How you can bring ethically. It wasn't even in a sense of she took away my faith or made me look at God differently or any of that. She just really helped me reframe a thought yep. process. Yeah. Completely changed the way I look at God completely mm. changed this shame feeling. I felt this condemnation now it comes up here and there, but I'm more right. equipped to understand when I'm triggered, why I'm triggered this way. Maybe mm-hmm. I spent too much time looking on social media, looking at other people and maybe looking at religious figures that I look up to, but just may have mm-hmm. spent too much time, like ingesting something yeah. that may not be positive. Yeah. And yeah. really going back to what is my center point? How does God feel about me? Mm. And remember what the word says, that, like your thoughts are precious towards me. That little bridge, very yeah. small bridge, but huge in the way we look at it. I think that's what, like you said, they get better faster. Yeah. I saw a shift immediately, like within yeah. a couple of months. Yeah, I was going to say, I can't even imagine if she had avoided that topic in the work that y'all did together, if she had kept it out or if you had brought it up at one point, vulnerably brought it up. And she was like, we don't talk about that in here or something like that. How hurtful that could be. And also would it help you heal? It would have been more like symptom management rather than healing the core stuff, right? Breakthroughs. I mean, you would have so many breakthroughs. Like I could go on for days of just the things, just specific Mm. sessions that I can remember of different things she has said. And I'm like, God, this was you. This, like, I can't even describe how you weave that together. Right. And like I said, ethically, not even in a- Right, 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 right. Yeah. I was just thinking that. Not a lot of self-disclosure, not a lot of I'm changing the way you think, pressing a belief on me, just more reframing, letting me make the choice, letting me decide, which ultimately is what we do in counseling, of course. That's right. Just holding that mirror up, right? Like holding that mirror up and saying like, do you see this? Let's talk about that. And do you see this? Let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, and just including the spiritual side of who we are is just such an important part of that holding up the mirror process. So I love that. All right, kind of switching gears a little bit, let's go into the clinician side of this. So what are some of the common misconceptions that some clinicians have and therapists with incorporating faith? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. So this has kind of been the heartbeat of the research that I've been doing really has been looking at the clinicians and what are their views about this? You know, how confident are they in their ability to do this and and what's happening? And what we see is that I think some of those, I think initially some of those misconceptions are, I don't have time to talk about this area of clients' lives, or we don't go there because that's not my job, right? Like we don't talk about that area of their lives, or it's, you know, unethical to talk about faith in the setting. We see a lot of those types of misconceptions, but what's interesting is that a lot of mental health care providers, they tend to have really positive attitudes. Like they tend to think actually this is important and they tend to be pretty confident in it. But I think those misconceptions get in the way when, because what we see when it comes to actually integrating clients' faith, like they're not doing it as often. And I think it is some of those misconceptions in addition to like, I just don't know how to do it because I never got training. Yes, I never got training. We saw in a national survey of clinical social workers who actually provide the largest proportion of mental health services in the United States. We found that about 13% of them had ever taken a class on this topic and about half of them. Yeah, I know <laughs> y'all Roslyn's jaw just my dropped. Face. Oh my God. Yep. So about I'm going to get a PhD, Holly. I'm just going to say it out to God. I'm gonna, like, you're going to have to tell me when and the provision. Cause I love it. Well, I was going to say Baylor has an online PhD program. So there's that. I'll just put in a plug for my employer there. Um, <laughs> and I'm biased towards it. I love it. But anyways, Yeah. So we see that very few folks are actually taking a class on it. About half are seeking out like continuing education 
on this topic. So to me, that communicates, okay, you didn't take a class, but now you're like, ooh, this is an important area of people's lives. I need to get some continuing education. The thing I get nervous about that though is like, what is being taught in those continuing education classes? And what is based? Is it like, all- yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, I don't know. And that's another line of work that some colleagues of mine and I are doing. We actually have an online training program for mental health care providers that has been studied and it does show to increase competence in this area. And it is available. It's on my website at hollyoxhandler.com under the resources. So there's some training links in that. But yeah, we see that for a lot of these mental health care providers, just some of those, those things that get in the way are some of those narratives that I mentioned. But yeah. at the same time, what I will say too, is that we have done some studies that have specifically asked mental health care providers, like what helps you to talk about clients' faith and then what gets in the way of you talking about it. And when we ask them about what helps you, um, about two thirds said like, well, just having a practice that's sensitive to religion and spirituality. So that might mean like I take a person-centered approach to my work or where I'm like focusing on the client or I recognize that there are coping styles that involve religion and spirituality, or like we talked about, like I include something about clients' faith in the assessment at intake. So there's that. We also saw about half of them said some degree of their own personal faith and journey helps them to integrate clients' faith. I could go down a whole rabbit trail about that, but The thing that as long as they're not imposing their faith, but again, this is why I really wish that we did more training because if their faith is influencing whether or not they're talking about it with their clients, I would really hope that these providers are getting some kind of training around like clearly your faith is important and clearly it's impacting what's happening in practice. Let's talk about ensuring that it's not imposing in any way. And also even personal, the clinician getting help personally, like their oh, own, yes, maybe their right. own dealing with right. their own trauma with their own yeah. personal, which is probably yeah. why they maybe not bring it in or all of that. Yes. Kind of, yeah. That's so that right. can be super. Yeah. Yeah. All of that, Holly, all of that. <laughs> this is like some really crisp Lipton iced tea on a hot mm. day with lemon <laughs> and lots of sugar. I'm real Southern right now, but that is, this is like, love really it. Good. oh, so good. Mm. Okay. So just in wrapping up, kind of tell me what are some ways that clients can feel empowered? Cause I know I've done yeah. a lot of classes on just ask your therapist to incorporate this, but also just asking about faith in initial consultations and assessments to be included. What are some things that they can feel empowered for that? All of your questions are amazing, first of all, but I really do because I feel like a broken record being like, that's such a good question. That's such a good one. But this one, I really love it because yes, a lot of my research has been paying attention to the mental health care providers, but man, at the end of the day, like this would be my biggest hope would be that clients would feel empowered to say, this is an important area of my life and I want to talk about it. So the ways in which I think that clients can feel empowered when it comes to this would be honestly that, I mean, in some ways to not oversimplify it, just for them to say, this is an important area of my life. Like for any of your listeners who are listening right now, who are thinking about going to see a therapist or are in therapy and maybe haven't brought up this topic or talked about this topic, I would hope that they would think, well, this is an important area of my life, just like every other area that we're talking about. So I want to talk about it. And what I want clients to know is that you're not alone. If this is something that's important to you that you want to talk about in some of the surveys that we've done, we have seen that an overwhelming majority of clients are saying that they do see their faith as being relevant to their mental health. We see that they are saying that engaging in their spiritual practices improves their mental health um, as about 65% who said that. And similarly saying as about 64%, I consider my faith to be relevant to my mental health. I mean, they're all agreeing like, yes, this is relevant. And then a big chunk of folks are saying neutral and a smaller chunk are saying that they disagree with that. But I would hope just in terms of empowering clients to know again, like you are not alone. There are so many clients out there who do see their faith and mental health as being intricately woven within one another. And that 
you can't separate them. Like for so many folks, they don't necessarily feel mentally healthy if they're not engaging in their faith or practicing their faith or in a healthy space with their faith. And in the same way, there's a lot of folks who don't feel spiritually healthy if they're not tending to and taking care of their mental health. And so I would just would empower folks to know that they're not alone, that others are saying that they want to talk about this. And then transparently, you know, just being honest about where we are as professions when it comes to training. And, you know, yes, your therapist, you know, I recognize that there is a power differential in some ways your therapist, you know, is going to guide the session and ask the questions. You are the one who is leading the work though, as the client. So I really want to emphasize that. And that in a lot of instances, like like in some of these surveys I've done with mental health care providers, we see that a big chunk of mental health care providers are just waiting for their client to say that they want to talk about it. So in the same way that clients are like, I want my therapist to ask about it. Therapists are like, well, I'm just waiting for the client to bring it up. Wow. So what a huge gap, but how that can be just filled through a simple question conversation. So, cause I can think of my first therapist was a male and he never brought it up. When I said something about God, he immediately started talking about it throughout our sessions. Like oh, immediately. really? Immediately. Huh. Yeah. So I've had four therapists up until this point, but uh-huh. like my first experience was with a male and he, like, as soon as I brought up God, he just immediately like tied it in and I was yeah. with him for a year. So it made a difference in my communication because it was so ingrained in what I believed and what I thought. He immediately responded to me just bringing that up. Mm, that's so good. That's so good. I think a lot of providers, they are open to talking about it. They don't want to offend. Nobody wants, you know, they don't want to offend or they don't want to push you away as a client or anything like that. And so I think that if there is something that is important to you related to the work that you're going to do with your therapist, bring it up. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, Holly, thank you. This has been such a rich conversation. I know I'm like relating everything to food and drinks, but this was like a rich piece of <laughs> rich brownie chocolate. <laughs> I love it. You're making me so hungry. Now I'm like, can I go make some tea and have a brownie? And yes, I love it. <laughs> I will probably attribute if I ever go and get a PhD to you. So you just, mm. you know, I take that girl. Cause I'm probably going to, Oh gosh, please don't feel afraid to reach out and ask questions about that because we need all hands on deck with wow. this line of work. And yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So you all, I thank you so much. I will have all of Holly's information in the show notes. I also have her Instagram, which is where I found her, which is such a God given gift. I'm so excited mm-hmm. that we even crossed paths with this and too. I love y'all. And we'll talk next week. Bye.